This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, June 30th, 2019, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. If you have your Bibles, if you open up to the book of Ecclesiastes, if you don't know what that is, you can divide your Bible in half, you'll get to Psalms, and then turn to the right, you'll get to Proverbs, and eventually Ecclesiastes. Now you may or may not know that the New Testament tends to address three different kinds of people quite often, and very specifically, the New Testament speaks to children at times. Uh, And then at times it speaks to youth or young men and young women. And then it speaks to older men or older women. And so for the old people among us, and I'll allow you to interpret what that means and ascribe your category to yourself and let you do that for others. Um, It's likely for those who are older among us that you believe that you are wiser today than you were in your youth. Whatever that means. Even if you consider yourself young, you may even look back to where you were younger and think, well, I'm probably wiser today than I was in years past. And so for those who are older among us, I have a couple questions for you. So the first is, if you could go back to the younger you, and impart the most important wisdom that you've learned since all these years have passed, what would you say, do you think? What do you think you would tell your younger self? That's the first question. I think an important one. The second maybe is equally important and maybe says more about just ourselves and our hearts. If you could go back and speak with a younger you, do you think you would actually listen to yourself? Like if you showed up and said, look, you've got to know this. You'd be like, right. Or would you be like, really? At a recent three-strand training, as pastors gathered together to learn, I had the privilege of listening to an author named Nicholas Alford who spoke about his new book called In Praise of Old Guys. It's a very short book. Interesting title. It's about exactly what it says. In praise of old guys. Among other things, he shared that much of our culture has kind of an automatic um, compulsion to reject older paths. Or to reject older ways. To reject any sort of wisdom that maybe comes from anyone older than age 20. Is this kind of a tendency of people. And I don't know if that's new, it's probably quite old. Despite warnings in the book of Proverbs, which come up multiple times, Solomon writes some of them saying, Be, Beware of moving the ancient boundary marker set by your fathers. Says it frequently. And it probably says it so much because since that time, we have a tendency to bulldoze fences without ever asking why those fences were there in the first place. No matter what the eldest among us tell the youngest among us, it seems like the younger you are, the more you want to experience it yourself. 
And the more rare it is for you to change course when you are warned about things. We often trust ourselves in our youth and often even remain very committed to stupid decisions that we make because we made them. And I think this is the result of a large rejection of the wisdom from men and from women among us. Wisdom of the older generations. Now, before I read the passage, um, in 2012 there was a professor, his name's Carl Pilmer. he's a world-renowned gerontologist. I don't know if you ever knew what that is. I had to look it up. Someone who studies aging, studies old people. I'll let old be defined by others. But he did a research project designed to to tap into the, the practical wisdom of the oldest Americans among us. And he wrote a book from it. And he interviewed, uh, I believe, individuals who were 70 and older and asked them all kinds of questions uh, about what are the most important things that you've learned over all of your years of life. And so, some of the lessons they came up with, and this is just a, a real summary of it. This thing going to work? Maybe? No? Well, I guess you'll have to do it, Joel. The wisdom, some of the lessons that were this, and I won't go into detail about them, but they said, choose a career for its intrinsic rewards, not financial ones. Act now like you'll need your body for a hundred years. Say yes to opportunities. Choose a mate with extreme care. Travel more. Say it now. Time is of the essence. In other words, life is brief. Happiness is a choice, not a condition based on circumstances. Time spent worrying is time wasted. And think small and enjoy the little things. They wrote a book with 30 different lessons that came from all this, but these were the 10 most prominent ones or most repeated ones. Sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes, actually. And that's what we have here is an old man, Solomon, writing to the younger generation. And we have to remember that Solomon, most likely, if he is actually writing this alive, he has lived a very full life, a full life that he has said is quite empty. Or someone has recorded everything that Solomon has said, and after his death, they are writing it to the next generation. But as we begin in chapter 11 here, beginning in verse 8, we see that he begins to address the younger generation directly. It's like a grandfather saying, come around, let me tell you what the most important things that I've learned from this experiment. And so over the next two weeks, as we close Ecclesiastes, I'm going to talk about four things, three today, one next week. And the three things he says today is to rejoice, to remove things that actually take away that joy, and to remember, particularly God. So here's his summary. If you look in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning in verse 8, here's what he says to the young among us. He says, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many, all that comes is vanity. 
Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, for the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun, the light, and the moon, and the stars are darkened, the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors in the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of a song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and the terrors of the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now, old man Solomon addresses the young men and women directly. And essentially, he begins by talking about joy. And he says God intends for mankind to have joy in his life. To have a life full of joy. Enjoyment is not supposed to be found in a particular thing. A particular moment. A particular day. A particular event. But in every day. In all of life. Joy is to characterize our everyday lives, whether those lives last many years or those lives are, or years are only few. Even if we live what he describes as a vain life, a brief life, an empty life under the sun, he kind of telling us, look, you need to actually live under the sun, actually in the sun. He wants you to live in a place of warmth, in a place of light. Like, okay, get some sun, and that's helpful in the Pacific Northwest overcast, right? Everything just feels better in the sun, lighter in the sun, more joyful in the sun. He says, yeah, life is hard, but don't live it in a cave. You're intended and designed to have joy. Now, it's interesting if you ever explore joy in the New Testament, for example, you'll find that the letter in the 26 books of the New Testament, 13 letters written by Paul, if you look at like, what is the one that speaks the most about joy? Anyone know which one it is? Philippians. The one written from prison. Like, what? Out of all the New Testament books, like this one speaks the most. Let's talk about joy in these Pastors put together a sermon series, Joy in Prison. Similarly, in the Old Testament, we are a bit surprised in such a dark book, in such a sorrowful book, to know if you pay attention and you read it carefully, joy comes up over and over and over and over again. Let me 
take you through Ecclesiastes really quickly to explain this. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Okay, mark that one. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. Behold what I have seen to be good and fitting. And he's seen it all, remember? It's to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he'll not watch remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. Now remember, this is the same book that said, like, life sucks, right? Pleasure doesn't satisfy. Achievement, like, and he keeps, he keeps going. Yeah, death comes to us all. Joy! Work is hard. Joy! Evil people are succeeding and righteous people are dying. Joy! Constantly. It's almost as if the harshness of life gives us a backdrop to understand what joy actually is. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 15. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and to be joyful. Well, this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. If you read Ecclesiastes carefully, and in particular read these passages carefully, you're going to notice something that is repeated. It's noteworthy that every time Solomon writes about joy, in the same verses he speaks about God. This is why the first time he brings it up in Ecclesiastes 2, which I haven't read yet, verse 24-25 to says this, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? The answer, no one can have joy apart from God. Joy cannot be experienced apart from God. That doesn't mean you won't have some experience of pleasure, some happiness, some prosperity, some even productive life. Those things can provide happiness in life. Solomon has actually said that. But he's also said that those same things actually are empty in regards to bringing meaning in life. Because meaning and happiness are actually not the same things. Soul-satisfying joy is what he's talking about. Any attempt to enjoy God's gifts apart from God results in usually those gifts becoming God's. Seeking 
to find the things that only God could provide through His gifts, which is twisted and wrong and in Solomon's words, chasing after the wind. Taken as a whole, the Bible, particularly, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes, reveals a couple things about joy that are really important. First, joy is actually quite urgent. It's found in the now. Right? This is why Solomon said like, hey, have joy all in every day of your life because we're always like, well, when my kids get to this point, I'll have joy. When I get this place in my job, I'll have joy. When this thing's out of my life, I'll have joy. When this thing's in my life, I'll have joy. That's not what Solomon says. That's not what the Lord through Solomon says. He says, joy needs to be found now because guess what? Tomorrow ain't guaranteed. We to enjoy the present. We're not supposed to skip over certain days. We're, we're not supposed to find joy only in the special occasions or only in the vacations or only in the weekends of life or only in retirement. In chapter 1, Solomon warned us not to rejoice in retrospect. Don't be saying that the days before were so much better and dwell on them. We're to find joy now knowing that tomorrow is not guaranteed and that the better that we think is best may never actually come to pass. There's a thought that can really screw with you. We're always thinking, well, I could get better. What if it can't? What if it doesn't? What if your better or best is right now and you're missing out on the joy that's right in front of you? So joy is urgent. We should not spend time dwelling on the dark moments that have come or the dark moments that may come, but rejoice in the certainty of the moment that's actually here. So joy is urgent. The second thing he teaches us about joy is that joy actually begins on the inside and extends to the outside. Not the other way around. This has been Solomon's big thing, right? Don't start out there and try to find joy for what's in here. Joy actually has to start here and work itself out. Otherwise, you're abusing the stuff out there. Solomon says, let your heart cheer you, he says. Let your heart cheer you. Joy begins with God because only God can actually change the heart where joy needs to be actually found. A heart full of joy will overflow into life, but if you start with life, it will never fill your heart with joy. At least not in a soul-satisfying way. The Bible says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. That God's gifts to us are good gifts to enjoy, but there is an order to things. Soul-satisfying joy must begin with acknowledging and thanking and fearing the gift giver if the gifts are ever going to be enjoyed at all. Beginning with the pursuit of joy in the outer life will actually ruin the inner life. Because, as I said, you will try to get from that gift something that it was never designed to provide you. Whether it be security, whether it be meaning, whether it be hope, those things can all be taken away. But the Lord and His hope and His love 
cannot be even if death comes. The third thing he teaches about joy really basically is that joy is found only when it is governed by the authority of God. That's an interesting one. Take joy! He really feels like he's telling the youth, man, just just go for it. Enjoy life. But the call to rejoice in all of our days and let your heart cheer you, he says, is not a call to hedonism, to do what you want-ism. It's an invitation to rejoice in maybe what's best described as a responsible way. To find joy where God says it's found in obedience. Now, obedience is kind of feels like naturally a bad word. We, we think about obedience, we're like, well, that's morality, that's, that's rules, whatever. Like Forgetting passages like John 15 where Jesus is like, I tell you these things so that your joy will be made full. That He's not some cosmic killjoy. In fact, He's an incredibly loving God who says, I want you to enjoy how I've designed you to enjoy. This is why He says in these first verses, to walk in the ways of your heart. Right? Tell, like, Imagine telling the youth this. Hey, walk in the way of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Walk in the way of your heart. Like we were talking about last week, like don't follow your heart. But he's like, okay, wait a second. Walk in your heart. So though it's not exactly the same thing in terms of like don't follow your heart because it's deceptive and evil, but we have passions. And those passions are from God. Those, those things that, that we enjoy that not everyone enjoys. Right? We're very different people. You enjoy... This, I enjoy that, whether it be you know, different kinds of recreation or different kinds of, of just you know, things. Like we have different joys that everyone has. He's follow your, like, let your heart cheer you. And then he says, What? For, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Like, God is not supposed to be distant from that joy. And it's not be like, God's watching. It's not like that. Like, mm-hmm. But it's mindful of what does God want me to enjoy? How does He want me to enjoy it? We're to seek joy with God. Not apart from Him. That's what Solomon's been trying to teach. Like, careful, you can build paradise apart from God and that leads to death. But you can also enjoy the echoes of paradise now with God until we're with Him in eternity. So he says, seek joy with God, doing what your heart and your eyes desire, what you're passionate about, but our pursuit of joy must always happen within the boundaries that God has set for us. So it's not do whatever you want-ism. It's do what God says delights and pleases Him and will bring you joy. So we learn a lot about joys. So Solomon's first thing is like, if he's going to go back and tell his younger self, he's like, what's the thing? Find joy in life. Enjoy life. God has given you things to enjoy. He doesn't want you to be all you know, stiff and, and, and dispassionate and just like, well, I'll just go through life and get through. Like, he wants you to, to have a fullness of joy. And that's good news. I'm not sure Christians have that um, reputation. They're just killjoys. Right? They don't want anyone to have fun. No, we want to actually have the most fun. We just know that God 
has given offense and he said, enjoy the yard. Play as much as you want. Have a blast. But he says, don't go over the fence. Why? Because it's unsafe. I put that there because I love you, not because I'm mean. Joy. Then he goes on. Second bit of wisdom in verse 10 is to remove whatever robs you of joy. Okay. Ecclesiastes 11.10 says, remove vexation from your heart. I'm not sure that's what we would have thought of when we thought of removing things that are not bringing us joy. How do I get rid of this person? How do I get a different job? Right? Notice where he goes. He's like, let's talk about your heart. Let's talk about why you really don't have joy. Then he says, and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity or brief or empty. So there are barriers to joy that that rob us of joy, many of which we probably feel are unavoidable. One of the biggest joy killers is, surprise, surprise, anxiety. Heart vexation. What a great way. Instead of saying, I'm worrying, I'm saying, I'm vexed. My heart is vexed right now. Impress your friends. In the report that I referenced earlier, right, the oldest among us giving us wisdom, one of the most frequent things they say was, time spent worrying is time wasted. And as you dig into that and ask, why do you say that? They would say, because most of the things they worried most about never happened. Right? We, we live in fear of what might happen, which causes us to not actually live in the moment because we're thinking so much about the next moment and trying to avoid whatever we imagine is coming that's bad. Wisely, Solomon calls us to literally banish anxiety. Banish it from your hearts and from your minds because in many ways, it doesn't just go away by itself. But we know if you have any anxiety in your life, some of us struggle more than others perhaps with that. You can't just get rid of anxiety with a pill or white knuckling, just get away! Anxiety! It just kind of overwhelms. In his letter to the Philippians, from prison, Paul reminds us that in order to get rid of anxiety, you actually have to ask for help. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says this, don't worry about anything. Thank you, Paul. If we just stop there, it'd be like, that really is helpful. But he doesn't, praise God. He says, but in everything. What do you mean by everything? Everything that you are anxious about. Little things, big things, anything. Silly things that people think, you shouldn't worry about that. Major things that probably won't come to pass. Or serious things that have been brought into your life. Difficult diagnosis, things of that nature. It says, in everything, through prayer, petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests with God. And the peace of God, 
which is the very antithesis of anxiety in life, which surpasses all understanding, doesn't make sense, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's actually quite simple. You pray. You take it to God. How do I banish anxiety from my heart? You hand it over to the Lord. And He brings a peace that doesn't make sense. Mental pain can rob us of joy, but He also talks about physical pain, right? He says, put away pain from the body. That doesn't seem very easy, right? Like it takes ibuprofen. Uh, but how do you cast off physical hindrances to joy? Again, I think most of our physical ailments probably feel out of our control. Um, and I think in many ways, when we have physical ailments, I know when I was struggling with my neck and my legs weren't working and things were twitching and being weird, it was one of those moments, actually Russell, I think, mentioned this. He told me he had a twitch once in his eye and he told me how thankful he became for it. I'm like, what? Are, you're weird. And, but he continued and he said, no, what I mean is that it reminded me that I wasn't in control. I was like, you are way more spiritual than me, and I appreciate that. But it's true. Like, when you start, things start falling apart, you're like, okay, I, I, I can't do anything about this. It doesn't even have to be like a diagnosis. It can just be getting old, right? And things breaking down. And you're like, there's no amount of good diet. I can't change this. I remember talking to my doctor about my neck. like, so if I lost like 25 pounds, like, nope, doesn't matter. I'm like, what? He goes, you got a narrow spine. Doesn't matter. You didn't create that. It just is. I mean, it might help, but it's not going to fix it. I'm like, I, I can't do anything. I don't have control over this. I don't know if I like that. Right? Those kinds of pains we're talking about. <clears throat> the only control that we actually might have is whether or not we're going to allow these things to govern our hearts and rob us of joy. I've repeated a particular phrase several times during this series. One I heard from another pastor who was preaching Ecclesiastes and I've loved it. And it's do not let what you can't control rob you of what you can enjoy. Do not let what you can't control rob you of what you can enjoy. That's what Solomon's talking about. Put away pain. Not ignore it, but don't let it govern you. Don't let it rob you of joy. Physical weaknesses, whether ours or the ones plaguing those that we love. Because when someone we love suffers, we suffer along with them. And we can let that pain begin to govern us. It's not even really our pain, but it's kind of our pain too. Putting away pain from our body requires us to do the same thing we did there on anxiety, which is to give our pain to God. And... I would say there's something magical about it because it's spiritual in a sense. But I don't think it's very complex of what we're talking about. We're talking about praying. Lord, I hurt. And though you may not take this pain away, would you bring me your peace? Would you help me to see it differently and not let it govern every attitude I have? This is what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 12, in his pain. It says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Therefore, since, 
so I would not exalt myself. A thorn in the flesh was given to me. A messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. So Paul had some amazing revelations and he was given a thorn in the flesh. Doesn't really ever tell us what it is. Some believe it was eyes. Some believe it was anxiety. Some believe it was all kinds of things. But whatever it was, he describes it as a thorn. And if nothing else, a thorn is painful to the body. So it doesn't really matter what it was. He's like, ouch. So he prays. He didn't pray once. He didn't pray twice. He prays three. Lord, take this away. Please. He says it tormented him. I bet there are brothers and sisters in here who have a pain that's tormenting them. That's just plaguing them, governing them. So verse 8, he says, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would just go away. But this is what the Lord said. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. What did the Lord say? My love's enough. My love's enough. And this was Paul's response to that. Therefore, knowing that His grace is sufficient and that the Lord's power comes forth through that weakness, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I will take pleasure. Now that's putting off pain. Like Putting off pain isn't just like mm, taking pleasure in your pain. That sounds crazy, but pleasure in weaknesses, pleasure in insults, pleasure in hardships, pleasure in persecutions, pleasure in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You know, sometimes removing barriers to joy just requires us to look at our pain differently. And even push us to find joy less in ourselves and our relief and more in God and His grace. Simply. And so Paul can tell the younger generation, look, don't let the realism and the difficulty of life read you to cynicism about it. Don't pretend that, that pain's not there, doesn't exist, but don't let it rob you of joy by turning away from God. Turn toward Him. Don't just put away your pain. Give it to God. Give it to God. Give it to God. And He will meet you there. So two things, right? Find joy. Put off those things that are robbing you of joy. Which both require you to go to the Lord. And look where he begins in chapter 12. Where I think is, in many ways, his crescendo. Lastly, and I think most importantly, at least in this section, he calls us to remember. Now the first eight verses here of chapter 12, they read like a poem. It's a poem about age. About growing old. It's somewhat of a depressing poem. And depending on your age, it either describes where you're at or it describes where you're headed. At some point in your life, it's going to describe you. If we were going to give a title to this poem, perhaps we would call it Remember Your Creator Before Things Get Worse. Because they will. So Solomon expresses very creatively 
kind of a dark picture of the aging body. So think about it. And he uses it, he compares it to an old house. So just think about getting old and think of this picture. And beginning in verse 1, it says, Remember also your Creator in the days of the youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure them in them. Before the sun and light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, right? And the strong men are bent. I'm sure no one has a bent back after working in the yard. The grinders cease because they're few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed. We don't see like you used to see. And the doors in the street are shut, and the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of the song are brought low. They're afraid also of what is high, and the terrors are in the way. The almond trees blossom. That's white. White trees blossoming. The grasshopper drags itself along. Desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners, as you start to see the funeral coming about, go out to the streets before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. So in summary, he basically is telling the young among us to remember the Creator before three things happen. Before suffering comes, because it will. Before you get old, because you will. And before you die, because you will. If you wait to remember your Creator before, you know, after suffering comes, and after you get old, and after you die, it may be too late. Too late to find meaning. Perhaps too late to find joy. He reveals the plain truth that, we'll just say, anyone over 40 knows when things get older things get darker things get slower things get harder like an old house that ages eventually everything wears out and somebody else eventually moves in the backs of strong men are bent the housekeepers or the women tremble and get colder easier and the once noisy and full house feels empty. They're no longer a productive grind and the eyes are starting to dim. The colorful forest on your head turns the color of white blossoms. And the grasshopper-like legs don't have the bounce that they once had. He even says that appetites give way and strong desires even dissipate as you begin to get gaunt and lose weight perhaps on your deathbed. Eventually the silver cord snaps, the bull breaks, and death comes to us all, and our bodies return to dust from whence they came. And Solomon calls us to remember our Creator now before this all happens. And it will happen. Solomon's best wisdom is to tell the next generation to remember your Creator because the biggest problem that we have in this generation, every generation, is Creator forgetfulness. Throughout biblical history, beginning with God's redemption of Israel, and you read this in 
Deuteronomy chapter 8, or it was read this morning, he's always calling his people to remember. Remember me. Remember me. Remember what I did. Remember who I am. Remember who you are. He called them remember, and he warned them repeatedly, don't forget. Don't fail to remember my commandments. Remembering God is more than just recalling knowledge, though. Remembering God is fearing God and living in response to the God who is and to the God who has done everything. You cannot fear the God that you've forgotten, which is what we'll speak about next week. What does it mean to fear God? Remembering God, you know what it does most, more than anything is remind you who you are. I think one of the greatest books you should read, it's a little book called Who Am I? by Jerry Bridges. One of the first things he talks about is in, turning, uh, in terms of figuring out who you are in Christ and what's your identity in Christ. The first thing he talks about says, don't forget that you're a creature. In fact, here's what he says. He says, He is the Creator and I am the creature. He is the Creator and I am dependent. He is the Creator and I am fragile. He is the Creator and I am actually vulnerable. He is the Creator and I am accountable because my life has been bought with a price. Remembering the Creator is remembering we have limits. Knowing our limits and pleading to Him for help and depending upon Him for help and constantly in relationship with Him because I know who He is and in light of that I know who I am and who I am not. He is the Creator. Everything I have is from Him and everything I need is with Him. The most important thing we can do in this life is remember our Creator. is to know our Creator is to obey our Creator because death is actually not the end. Young people need to be told. And if you are older, if you consider yourself older, which I don't. I I, I don't consider you older. But if you consider yourself older, young people need to be told and old people need to be the ones doing the telling. And what do they need to be saying? The same things that Solomon is saying here. Young people need to be told about the brevity of life. Now, they may not listen. I'm not sure we would listen to ourselves if we were to go back in time. They need to be told about the reality of life. The harshness of life. The disillusionment of life. The emptiness of life. Young people must also be told to receive the life that God has given him and not try and seize the life that he hasn't. There's a difference. That doesn't mean don't follow your passions. That doesn't mean work hard. It means receive with thanksgiving the portion that God has given you. Stop comparing it with the portion that He has given someone else. Must be told the youth among us cleverly as a teacher, I'm also telling the old. Isn't that clever, right? Because we all need this. To find joy in the simple daily pleasures and learn to savor them now. Not tomorrow. 
Not an expectation for retirement or the weekend. Now. Savor them now. Every moment now with the Lord. And young people, I think most importantly, must be told that joy is possible in this life, but it cannot be found apart from God. So seek Him now before it's too late. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Age reveals something that's quite obvious, but in youth, it's kind of unbelievable. But as you get older, you understand, I'm not indestructible. Right? The younger you are, you're like, I can handle that. I can take that. I can jump off that. I can eat that. Whatever. And you realize as you get older, like, yeah, I'm not indestructible. You shouldn't jump off that. You shouldn't eat that. And I'm not going to do that. And the reason why, like, it's interesting, we feel like we should be indestructible. We feel like life should go on. And, and I think that's because, as Solomon said earlier, eternity's been put into our hearts. So, what does that mean? Well, there's a sense that we're designed to live forever. Like, things keep going. Like, I have a sense of eternity, even if I don't believe in it. But for those who do, certainly go, like, man, like, Things shouldn't break down like this. Why does my leg have to stop working all of a sudden? Like, this doesn't seem right. Well, it's not right. In the sense that as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7.2, I've discovered that God made people upright and they pursued many schemes. God made the world good and we broke it. Genesis 3 records where things went wrong. And I'll close with this because it's really, I think, important to consider as we consider age and death and what that's supposed to lead us to. But Genesis 3 is remembered for the fall of man, right? But I think few of us maybe read the back half of Genesis 3. It gives us insight into how God uses age and how He uses death to help us remember who He is and who we are. You know, after confronting Adam and Eve in sin, after condemning them, after cursing them in the world, and then covering their shame with with skins of animals, he says this in verse 22, the Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out and take from the tree of life and and live forever. Did you catch that? So they're in their sin, they're in their guilt, they're in their shame, and he's like, they're in the garden still. The tree of life is there where we'll give life forever. But what does He not want them to do? I don't want them to live forever like this. So what does He do? So the Lord sent Him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which He was taken. And He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. I'm not going to let you by here or I'm going to cut your head off. Right? You're like, whoa, he really doesn't want them to eat from the tree of life and remain in their fallen state. He pushed them out into life under the sun. He pushed them into the wilderness. He pushed them into the harsh reality that Solomon's been describing. And you're like, man, that's kind of mean. 
No. He pushed them into a place where age and atrophy and all these things became signposts to point us to the rescuer and to birth in us or remind us of where we actually are supposed to be in paradise with God. To give us that desire, to give us that clarity, and to realize as things break down and death's on our doorstep, we go, whoa, 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 this is the end, what am I going to do? I need someone who conquered death. Yeah, his name is Jesus. He conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan. And his intention is for you to believe that he did die the death you deserve, and he did rise from the dead so that he can bring you back into paradise with God again where the fullness of joy is. Death, in many ways, is God's call for us to remember and hope beyond the sun. Everything under the sun dies. Everything under the sun ages. Everything under the sun breaks down. And it should move us to the place of, what can I do? And the answer? Believe in Christ. The One who came from beyond the sun into our brokenness, and now promises to bring us back with Him into paradise with God. Emptiness of youth. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of surrender because guess what? Tomorrow is not guaranteed. If you're not a Christian, I plead with you to believe. More than anything, what that means is to surrender your life to Jesus to declare that He is your Savior and Rescuer that you needed, and then to live with Him as Lord, believing that He has told you a path to walk, not to be mean, but to give you the fullness of joy. And if you are a Christian, and you've forgotten that, I plead with you to remember your Creator. To remember who you are, and who He is, and to live in response to His grace. Let's pray.